We are working our way through the book of Titus in a series titled Church Essentials. You can see it up there on the screen. Uh, Titus is a short letter that we find uh, in the New Testament written by Paul uh, to a guy named Titus. I have a distinct memory as a child saying to myself, I'm going to write some biblical commentaries. And my, I, so I wrote one about uh, Titus. And I'm like, um, this book is written by a man named Titus. And, uh, and I, and of which, of course, he's the recipient. Uh, but that didn't stop me. So, and I, I wrote all my thoughts out about it. And then I went back later as an older person. And I realized that you should not write biblical commentary uh, at that age. It's, um, yeah, that's what I think of when I think of Titus. Uh, so Titus was a young man who worked with Paul in his church planting endeavors. And as Dwight opened up the series for us last week, uh, we see that Paul left Uh, Titus on the island of Crete. And they had been doing some church planting there. Uh, For Paul, Crete was a hugely strategic place to plant churches because of all of the natural harbors that were around uh, the, the island. You could see there was a lot of places for ships to be coming in and out, which meant there was an opportunity for the gospel, the good news of Jesus and his finished work on the cross to to leave the island and spread around in the region with you know, merchants and mercenaries and various people who were coming in and out of Crete. But unfortunately, in addition to being a strategic location for church planting, Crete also had a culture that was akin to like Las Vegas. Uh, sex and power and money and deceit and violence. Uh, this was the, the culture in Crete. It was, it was pretty bad. And these young churches that had been planted were affected uh, by this culture. They, they took some of this culture in, and that was a huge problem. And partly this was due to bad leadership, corrupt leadership, which is what Dwight uh, dug into last week, um, talking about the office of elder, what we would in our culture maybe call someone a pastor. Uh, so we dug into that last week, but also because of cultural assimilation, where the church begins to look more and more like the dominant culture around it. So enter Titus. Titus, Paul instructs Titus and us on a few essential ingredients of, of building blocks of what can help the church be protected and even counteract and guard against cultural assimilation and other uh, problems that they were seeing and corruption in their leadership. So this morning we're going to be in Titus chapter two. It's the passage that uh, Brian just read for us. And uh, we'll be taking a look at this same passage Strangely, in a couple of weeks, Jeff Wright will be up here preaching. So he'll do the same passage and he's going to be looking at casual, cross demographic, uh, sort of milieu family style interactions and relationships, what we would call uh, city groups, what we see happening in our city groups. Uh, But this morning, this time, we're going to be looking at intentional same gender relationships, uh, something that we would call change groups. I think I wrote that there. Yeah. And gospel accountability in those groups. So gospel accountability in intentional same gender relationships, uh, or just change groups is a better title. Uh, you'll note as we go through this series that we're going to jump around in Titus a bit. Um, we're not going through it 
uh, strictly chronologically. This is partly my fault for getting really sick a couple weeks ago. That messed with the schedule. Um, but also uh, this week, Jordan was actually supposed to be preaching this morning. Uh, but this week, his uh, grandmother passed away. And, uh, and so he's traveling uh, to, to be uh, in the United States to be at the memorial. And so we want to be praying for them as they grieve, as they travel for safety. And, um, and we want to pray for ourselves this morning as we dig into the word. So I'm going to do that now. Papa God, uh, we do remember Jordan, his family. Um, we ask for just comfort in the midst of, of loss, of grief, uh, for safety as they, as they travel, as there's upheaval around this for many people that are gathering in this one space. Uh, Lord, we ask that you would be um, glorified even through these times. Uh, we ask for your help this morning for ourselves, uh, that you, Spirit, would be at work here, um, sanctifying us, making us more and more uh, like yourself, more and more like Jesus. Uh, only you can do this, uh, Spirit. So we ask that you would do this as you've promised, that you finish the work that's begun in us. And for those hearts that are uh, resistant to you this morning, uh, we ask that you would bring new life and uh, that you would do this for your glory and for our joy. Amen. A couple of years ago, uh, my family and I had the opportunity to actually go to Crete, that island that was on the screen earlier. Um, has anyone ever gone to Crete? I will try to block out to see if anyone raises their hands really high. My family don't do that. That's distracting. I know you went. I was there. Um, we got to be there. We got to be there for about a week. And it's an island. There's Ben contemplating Crete. Um, it's an island, as you saw. And so you have to take a boat or a plane or something to get there. And we flew on this airline called Ryanair. Who's ever heard of Ryanair? Yes. What are they famous for? Yeah, yes, cheap, cheap. Let me tell you, you pay for it in other ways. Um, I have been on a lot of airplanes in my life, but I have never experienced anything like this. Uh, the interior of the cabin is this obnoxious, bright yellow color. Like it could not be brighter. It's like you're inside the arches of a McDonald's. You're just in this tube, uh, which for a normal person is probably unpleasant, but I have sensory issues. So like the yellow was just intense. But the most disturbing element was that on the plane, typically you would have like a little kangaroo pouch thing on the seat back in front of you. So you can, you know, put your stuff. There'd be like a barf bag or something in there, instructions of what to do if the plane breaks up in the sky, you know. And, uh, and there was nothing. It was just this flat area of just blankness. And I just, it bothered me so much as I sat there staring at it. It was almost like the amenities of the plane had been just castrated in some manner. There was just nothing left. And uh, we almost didn't end up even being able to fly because the pilots, they were not being paid enough or something. And so they went on strike. But eventually we managed to get to Crete. And um, it's a very dry place. It's funny because when you look at pictures like for travel for Crete, it looks lush. It looks sort of almost tropical. They, they, I think they're just raising the saturation in those images. We were there after summer, so maybe it's like a little greener in springtime, but it was pretty, it was pretty dry. It's mountainous, and there are goats everywhere, free-ranging, mountain-climbing, road-blocking goats. And uh, there were some sheep also, but mainly these goats. And eventually it became clear to me that the entire system on Crete is that the goats eat everything and anything, and then the people eat the goats. 
This is the, it's a symbiotic relationship between the people of Crete and their goats. And we got to see, um, well, my kids got a front row seat to this goat-driven economy. Um, at our Airbnb, we adopted uh, uh, these stray cats that came uh, into our lives. And, you know, so now it's living the high life on the cushion, receiving pets from the children. And, and, but we needed to get some cat food. You can't feed cats just anything. So we went to, I'm going to take this away so you can just visualize. We went to this little store in the middle of nowhere to get some cat food, if we could. And we left our children in the car we had rented, parked there, and it's dusky. It's like night, almost nighttime. And we go inside, and when we come back out, we see that there's these trucks, these two trucks parked next to uh, our, our children. And we don't think much of it. We get in the car, and then they begin to explain to us what we had just missed. That these things, shortly after we left, these two trucks had pulled over to conduct some sort of goat-related transaction. And as, as our children are watching, one man reaches into the back of the truck, and he pulls out a goat, minus all of its skin, and as he's holding it up, he, he notices its lidless gaze going off towards this other car. And he sees three pale North American children's faces staring in horror um, at, at this thing. They, my kids had never seen anything without its skin before. Um, I had never seen this either. And I had many ample opportunities to observe this as we went through uh, uh, Greece. There's a lot, of, a lot of animals like this. And I, I didn't grow up like Dwight did. Uh, in the home of a world-famous hunter surrounded by gunpowder and blood, I lived a sheltered life. And my, up to this point, I'd managed to raise three very sheltered children. <clears throat> so this was, a, this was our a, a experience of Crete. You get to, get to begin to feel the, the, the sense of this place. Um, very nice people, very lovely people. Uh, we, we really did actually enjoy our time there, despite some of those traumas and getting there and the goats. But they were nothing like what they used to be like, apparently. Because apparently, 2,000 years ago, they used to be awful. Um, even, in fact, if you, if you refer to them as the Cretan people, it sounds even a little bit wrong, like almost offensive. Do you guys feel that? If you call someone a Cretan, it's actually like an insult. Um, but Paul himself raises this for us. If we just dip back a little bit into, into chapter 1, he quotes somebody. He says, Chapter 1, verse 12, he says, One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. This is just so funny. I mean, he just says, like, look, nobody, you know, and he's, you know, you're, you're preaching this, and they're like, yeah, you know, like. And the problem was, is this is, you know, bleeding into the church and even the church leaders. Uh, and so he continues, therefore, till, telling, you know, uh, Titus, Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Jesus taught that we need to uh, live in the world, but not be of the world. And this would be a part of the issue or, or doctrine that we refer to as Christian living. How do we as Christians do our everyday practical lives? How, how should we do this? Because this is the issue that, that they're getting wrong in Crete, their Christian living. 
Um, and as much as the church was assimilating and becoming like the Cretan culture, the power of the gospel uh, was being removed. Because if Jesus's, if Jesus's gospel doesn't change anything about your life, what good is it? How do people who are looking in at the church perceive you? They're going to say, oh, it's, it doesn't change anything. You're irrelevant at best, or at worst, you're a hypocrite. How do we as Christians tackle this issue? For some, they isolate themselves. They pull back out of the culture. Um, they, they try to put up walls around themselves, which is unnecessary, unbiblical, and counter to our mission to be heralds of the gospel, to be witnesses to it, to be salt and to be light. We can't do all those things if we're in a cave, you know, being a, a Christian hermit or in a monastery, or if you never leave the Christian ghetto, you only ever talk to people who already know the gospel and you, you avoid those who don't. At the same time, then the other side of it is like if we are fully in the world and we end up looking just like it, if we lie and cheat and steal and if we abuse creation and people and substances, then what's the point? What's, what about our mission? Our words are empty as we communicate the gospel if they change nothing for us. So this is a tension. This is a tension that we find in this, this issue or this doctrine of Christian living. How, do we, how, do, how should these Cretan churches be living out? Should they just isolate themselves or should they be fully engaged with the culture? And every Christian doctrine is like this. Whether it's doctrine of God, of Jesus, of salvation, there's always a, a tension. There's always a balance that we need to hold on to. In this. And so this chapter two here in Titus deals with this issue of Christian living and deals with holding on to this tension. So let's, uh, Matthew, or um, sorry, Matthew 5, uh, verse 13, Jesus talks about the importance of this. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. So we can talk about trying to be in the world, but not be of the world. But Jesus makes it pretty clear that this is extremely important, that we are salted into the world, but we remain different, almost as an irritant. Um, Revelation chapter three, Jesus says, I know your works. You're neither hot, cold nor hot. Would, you, would that you were either cold or hot because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. That for us, that if when, when we assimilate to the culture, what we're really saying is, is that we don't need God in our everyday lives. We'll be a Christian on Sunday. We'll have that be a little extra thing in our lives. But during the week, during the rest of our lives, we can just live just like the world. We can be like the Cretans. We can do what we want. That the part of our lives that, that God represents is just sort of like a sprinkles, like chocolate sprinkles on the top of our life. But what is sort of like a delicious little topping thing to us is revolting. It's revolting to God. It's something he wants to spit out. Starbucks does not offer a lukewarm version of their coffee. Have you noticed that? It's either lawsuit hot or brain freeze cold. Why? Lukewarm drinks are disgusting. Your homework this week is to go to Starbucks or Tim Hortons, somewhat, go to your coffee place and just order a drink and demand that they make it lukewarm. They will look at you funny. That's a gospel opportunity. But then go and drink it and read this verse in, in Revelation 3. 
just experience the way that the Lord experiences those who are like, yeah, I'm on team Jesus. And then the rest of the week, they just are the same. This is the issue. The scriptural injunctions against assimilation are many and varied. This is the problem. So, so now Paul is going to begin to contrast this. Titus chapter 2, verse 1. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Right away, Paul sets up a contrast with the prior passage. He's like, this is the way the Cretans are. This is the way the Cretan churches are being. This is a huge problem. But for you, but for you, be different. Maintaining the balance uh, is a very, very hard thing to do. And so the first point that I wanted you guys to latch onto this morning is that you shouldn't do the Christian life alone. This is not something that you should attempt alone, uh, to be in the world but not be of the world. Uh, the Bible hammers this theme repeatedly, this idea that, that being a part of a community, that being in relationship with others will help bolster and strengthen your ability to do this. Uh, Proverbs 27, iron sharpens iron as one man sharpens another. Uh, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Ecclesiastes 9. Uh, New Testament, Hebrews 10. And let us consider how to stir one another up Stir one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Do not do the Christian life alone. This is really important for us to hear, the significance of this, because we live in a very, very individualistic society. This is just who we are. Uh, we are deeply concerned with ourselves first and above everything else. And the only way that you can, the only way you can really be successful in doing that is by being alone and protecting your shiny, shiny autonomy. Now, we read these verses, we like the idea of community. A lot of people come to our church in uh, seeking for community. They want to be in relationship. They want to be with other people people. And with good reason, these verses sound amazing to us. Uh, even introverted people like myself don't want to be alone all the time. When my family's gone all day on Fridays, at first it's awesome. And then after a while, you kind of like, well, you know, it was less awesome. And then by four o'clock, I'm talking to myself out loud like a crazy person. It doesn't take long and they don't come home until later. So there's this weird period. Everyone needs people. But here's the thing. Being with people, being in community means making compromises. It means being imposed upon. It means uh, making commitments, limit which limit your options and risk the loss of like maybe some other thing that comes along that now you're not free to do than you would have liked to do, but you can't because of these, these commitments that you've, you've bonded yourself with other people. There's a cost to being in community. It creates constraints. And after being involved in church planting in this city for almost 10 years now, I would say that this is one of the largest, if not the largest issue we have faced as church planters, this issue of uh, autonomy, this uh, pervasive worship of self. This is the number one issue that we have faced. 
And let's just think about autonomy for a second. In our city, there's people who are experiencing different levels of autonomy. I would suggest that the highest levels of autonomy are experienced by people who are homeless. And homelessness is a serious thing. We've had uh, many people who are involved in our church who have had seasons of homelessness. There's a lot of different reasons for why people uh, would be homeless, whether it's mental issues, substance abuse. But societally speaking, they have the least level of commitment to society than anybody. No permanent address. Maybe they don't carry uh, ID. They don't work a legally recognized job. They don't pay taxes. And these are things that all of us, for the most part, do without even thinking about. And they are restrictive on us. It's restrictive to have to file your taxes. That season is right now. It's a thing. This is, these are things that we choose to do somewhat unconsciously. We accept those restrictions because we we recognize the value of being engaged in society to that degree. It's something that we, those, the social constraints um, are, are worth it because of the benefits. Uh, conversely, by engaging with society, we're in effect, we're agreeing to these things uh, like uh, not to urinate in public. That's a, that's a constraint that some people cast off. They don't care. For all of us, it's a constraint that we that we choose to uh, participate in, to be a part of society. Uh, Another example would be wearing deodorant. If you think about it, deodorant is not for you. It's for those around you. If you don't use it, after a while you won't notice, but other people will. Yet you bear the cost of paying for it. You risk the armpit cancer from all of those weird chemicals. Um, It's totally on you. Uh, And I'm, I'm going to be careful not, I'm not going just picking on like homeless people here, like Steve Jobs, let's go to the other end of the spectrum, billionaires. Steve Jobs for a season in his life, I understand, didn't wear deodorant. He didn't want to be, have to deal with it because he wanted to preserve his autonomy. Um, he parked in disabled only parking spaces because he didn't care. Like he's like, I reject your social constructs of deodorant and, and parking spaces for the disabled. So those are extreme examples, billionaires and, and homeless peoples. More down the middle, we have a whole range of options of things that we in society can choose to constrain ourselves with to be in relationship. Um, here's an excellent example. Marriage. Marriage is just a huge basket of constraints. This is why people make these sort of ball and chain jokes. This is a brilliant photo. Um, there are, there, it's, it's basically saying, I commit to these constraints uh, to be with you, only with you, till death do us part. I will be monogamous. I will be faithful. These are, these are all constraints. Uh, another example, children. Children is a constraint. I love this picture. He's smiling, but look in his eyes. He just didn't know this was possible, and yet here he finds himself. Not some of the ladies are like, you skipped something. Here's a constraint. Some of you have carried another human being inside your body. It's constraining. It's constraining on all kinds of things inside your body and out. Constraining on your your life path, your, your career. You have to choose community involving, involving yourself in the lives of other people, growing other people inside your body, raising them. These are all hugely, hugely constraining things. I tried to find a picture of somebody who was like uh, baby wearing multiple children and like walking and shopping at Costco, but I, I couldn't find one. But the guy holding all those babies, these are all wonderful, beautiful things. Yet, what do we see in our culture now? We see people giving these things up. 
They're like, the, the, the rate of marriage is plummeting. The rate of monogamy versus other more interesting arrangements is plummeting. Uh, the rate of having children is plummeting. Canada is not replacing itself. I don't know if you guys realize this. Like only India and Africa are replacing themselves and they're on trajectory to go down. The world is decided that having children, it's just not worth it. It's, it's a constraint that they don't want to. Why? Individualism, autonomy. Um, our city group leaders feel this keenly. They try to set up an event on Facebook. Who's ever done this? You've made an event. You're a city group leader. You've made an event. No, don't raise your hands too high. Everyone's going to judge you. But you raise your hand. You, you, you put an event up. You're like, with this great serving opportunity. And what do people do? They're like, hmm. If they respond at all, they'll say interested. Why? Because you can say interested in a bunch of different stuff. And then notice Facebook is enabling you in this. It says, it says, Choose interested to get updates and decide if you can go later, right? You can kind of have this Darwinian thing happening where you're like, I got all these, I got all these you know, horses in this race. I'm going to see which one comes out in the lead. I'm going to go to that. Or I'll go to none of them and I'll just Netflix and chill because you know, I'm feeling a little tired. And you know, there's, a, there's a low level of commitment, which makes it really hard on your city group leaders to plan anything. Uh, this is a struggle for us. Um, so this is really long, but just coming to the second point, being a Christian means embracing the constraints of certain key relationships. It's just, it's not that you just shouldn't do Christianity alone. It's that actually being a Christian is a community thing. It's something that you, you, you should be doing with other people. And, and at first you think, oh, this is going to be great. I'm going to have this community. And then you're a part of a community and you're like, oh, actually parts of this are kind of like restrictive and constraining. And I'm not sure I like this, but that's good. That's a part of it. You have to expect that. All right, that was all off of verse one. And that wasn't even assigned to me. Let's keep going. We're at, this is our actual passage. Um, and at first blush, it's going to look like Paul is giving Titus this really long list of things. Man, those Cretans are terrible. Have them stop being like this and start being like this. And it's a list of rules or recommendations or whatever. And these are good things. What he's saying is like, don't be a liar. Be honest. Don't be unfaithful. Be faithful. These are good things. It's not bad. But what we're going to focus on, rather than digging into these really controversial things about women needing to learn to love their husbands and kids, like arranged marriages or something, instead of focusing on that and what he is communicating, what we're doing as we look at church essentials, what are the essential building blocks of the church? We're going to look at the how, the how of what Paul wants Titus to be doing structurally. How does he want this information to be transmitted? So let's read it again. Uh, chapter two, verse two, older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. You can probably get a really great idea of what it was like to be in Crete by just implying the exact opposite of everything you see here, okay? This is, this is like Jerry Springer kind of stuff that they're just doing the opposite of. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching, show integrity, 
dignity and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants. And you can read bond servants as like the butler in Downton Abbey or something. These are not slaves. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. So again, we're not going to say like, oh, well, what does it mean to not be a pilfering butler? You know, don't steal the silverware. Like, we're not going to get into that. But instead, we're going to look at like, what is, what is Paul describing here? What is Paul outlining for the church? How is this information going to be conveyed? And certainly there's a lot of different mix that happens with different things. But one thing that we're supposed to focus in on this morning is the, the type of relationship that is along gender lines, uh, older to younger older men to younger men, uh, and older women to younger women. And in each case, the older doesn't necessarily have to be chronologically older. It may just be that someone's been a follower of Jesus longer. They may be at a different place spiritually or more spiritually mature. Uh, they might have, uh, more experience. Uh, and this is not, this is not teaching something that you're not doing already doing. It's being and then teaching. It's do as I do, life on life type discipleship. Uh, so these intentional gender specific type relationships, this is another essential aspect of the church. And this is something that in our church, we use the term change groups. You could say it with more enthusiasm. Change groups. Yes. Like you love them. There we go. Uh, and these are set up for our personal sanctification. Change group is not so like you have a friend to go to the movies with and hold hands with or whatever. Like this is specifically geared towards personal sanctification. Sanctification is the process of setting something apart for, for, for holiness, for, for holy use. It's to make something holy, to make something more like God who is holy, this process of sanctification. And while we're aiming to influence that area of our lives, we have to first recognize that this is really the Holy Spirit's job. The Holy Spirit is the primary agent in our sanctification. Second uh, Thessalonians 2.13, but we ought, always ought to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. And so not only is this the work of the Holy Spirit, and this is really important because sometimes people go to church and they become like, they think it's a religious thing. And they're like, I got to do this. And Paul said, I got to be, love my husband and my kids. You know, like I got to do this list of things to become more holy, more like God. But that's not how it works. We believe that, that Jesus, through his work on the cross, has a way, now opened a way for you to just be gifted righteousness, just to be gifted holiness. And it's not something that you receive all at once. Legally, you are made perfect and clean by the work of Jesus. Legally, you're without sin. But then there's a, a sort of a heart transformation that takes time. And so you receive the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit does the work. We're not a, we're not a religion. We're just someone who has invited a spirit into our lives to change us. It's a very weird thing when you think about it like that. And not only is the Holy Spirit the one who's responsible for making you more holy like Jesus, but also that he is able to complete the process. This is sometimes a difficult thing because we look at our hearts and we're like, nah, I'm still not a whole lot like Jesus. What's going on here? Is God really able to change me? Yes, he is. Philippians 1, 
16. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So the Holy Spirit's job is to make us more like Jesus, and he is able to do it. So what is our role in this? He actually, part of the, part of the sanctification process actually involves the Holy Spirit bringing us, the brothers and sisters in the church, in Christ, bringing us into this process. Just like Jesus could have probably like put a big IMAX screen in the sky, told everyone in the world the whole gospel. He could do it on an annual basis. People would be like, oh, okay, you know, and they'd be able to have a chance to respond to it or not. That would be a lot easier for all of us, right? But he doesn't do it like that. Instead, he tells us to get involved. He has us go out and share the gospel. In the same way, in the church, once people have responded to the gospel and made Jesus their savior, their king, and their treasure, then he involves us even more in this process of sanctification. So yes, the Holy Spirit is doing it. Yes, he is able and will finish the process. But we get, we get drawn up into this. We are responsible for one another, in a sense. Uh, for our sanctification and our holiness. And the way this gets worked out in a lot of churches is in an unfortunate manner. Um, who's ever heard of an accountability group? Some of you, many of you have heard of accountability groups. Who has really strong positive feelings about the way accountability group sounds? Less of you. Um, what I think of an accountability group is it's the people that I have to go and see when I've done something really bad and tell them. And I don't want to have to tell them that I've done something bad, so I better not do it in the first place, right? Like that's kind of the rhythm of accountability groups in the church uh, historically. And, um, and that's not super helpful. Yeah, it's like you can create some improvement and some change in people's lives temporarily by scaring them and causing them to fear public shame or public consequence of, of having to make a phone call or sit down with someone and be like, cheated on my wife again, you know, and like, they're like, uh-oh. That is the traditional accountability group. For us, change groups are not like that. So if that's what you're thinking, you're like, I don't want to be in a change group because I'm thinking it's accountability group. It's nothing like that. Uh, for us, our focus is instead, we do ask those hard questions. It's an appropriate place to ask those questions. But instead of bringing shame, it's an opportunity to bring the sin and to be reminded that it's been paid for by Jesus and that you're free. That the shame of the sin has been removed from you. That, that Jesus ultimately loves you and loves you even in your sin and still accepts you. That it's not up to you. That legally you, you can't, transgress against God in a way that he's going to divorce himself from you and, and cause you to end up losing your salvation, that these things aren't possible. So we have an enemy who says this to us all the time. When we sin, we begin to hear accusation. That, that the Satan is the accuser. That's what he does. And so in many ways, change groups seek to affect change by counteracting the accuser by being the affirmer. That we seek the truths of the gospel and the Bible together. That we in change group open the Bible and we, we remind each other and ourselves of the truths of the gospel. To counteract all of the lies that we're hearing from the enemy. And even our own brokenness inside us and our own false understanding that we're reminded and pointed back to the infinite unmerited grace that we have in Christ. And that even though we're deeply aware of our own depravity, that, 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 that the spirit is continuing to draw us into greater and greater levels 
of holiness. And that we can, because of this, we can joyfully and freely throw ourselves into the light of, of community to throw ourselves and say, like, I screwed up and to receive grace and to receive uh, uh, forgiveness as long as we are repentant. It's not the type of thing where you can go be like, I sinned again. And they're like, oh, it's Tuesday. You're right on schedule. We forgive you. You know, like, it's not like that, but that we can go and receive a fresh start if we are genuinely repentant, uh, that that door is always open. And so we remind each other that it's there. So this is what Paul is instructing us in, that we should be intentional about choosing these types of close, same gender type relationships so that you can have this kind of gospel remembrance. And I know that for many people in our culture, um, this is sort of very gender normative. There's an increasing number of people who are not identifying using those terms or they struggle to fit themselves into the stereotypes of these, these types of relationships. And, and, and that's a, that's a challenge that we face culturally. Like how do we engage uh, with those situations? But generally speaking, generally speaking, Paul is saying there's a special opportunity. There's a unique opportunity to have within the church relationships, close relationships between men with men and women with women to be able to do this kind of work, that this is something that we can have and that we preach the gospel of grace to one another. Verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people and training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age. So according to Paul here, so he goes from that, he goes to the grace of God. What is it that trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions? What is it that trains us to do that? It's the grace of God. Isn't that weird? No, a blank page. That's not good. Oh, good. The notes continue. What trains us to be self-controlled, upright, and godly? The grace of God. Not rules, not shame, not what we would call fear of man, but the grace of God. That grace being poured on over these things actually has more lasting power for personal change. So in change groups, we want to tap into the power of the grace of God to continually point people back into that. Continuing verse 13, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Now remember, Paul's writing this specifically to Titus. He's recognizing, he's like, you're going to go talk to these people. You are going to get some pushback. And maybe even this morning, you guys are like, I saw what those verses said. I didn't like that. I, I have pushback in my heart. I, I like my autonomy. Don't take my autonomy from me. Don't constrain me. Don't put that on me. There may be some pushback for you as well. And if you, if you're visiting with us this morning and you know, you've not made any sort of personal commitment to Jesus, that's okay. Like our goal for you this morning is just engage with Jesus, get to know Jesus better. But if you are on team Jesus already, then this is for you. Uh, you, you, that person that you were when you were baptized and the pastor held you under the water, this is why we don't do sprinkling because we really want to get you all the way under because it's supposed to symbolize like we're drowning you. Like we're holding you under until you're dead and we're pulling up a new person and not just like, you know, waterboarding you with some little sprinkles here. Because Jesus gave himself, verse 14, to redeem us from all lawlessness, lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. His possession. 
If you are on team Jesus, you belong to him. You are now his possession. He purchased you with his blood. So let's say that you're on board. You're like, yep, I belong to Jesus. I want to do what it is that I'm being instructed to do by scripture. I want to, I want to just do more than just float through my Christian life. I want to be engaged with community and I want to, I want to be in these same gender, very close change group types of things because I want to pursue change in my life. I want to pursue holiness and I, I want the grace of God to be regularly applied to my life so that I can live differently. This is what we would call gospel accountability. Not normal accountability group, but gospel accountability to, to remind one another of the gospel. Uh, so if this is something that you want, uh, I'm going to challenge you to seek after this um, this week, that you would pursue this. Uh, I know that this is an area for us as a church that we've always lifted up as saying this is a good thing. This is a good thing, but it's also a, a difficult thing to enter into. It requires a high level of intentionality. Um, so challenge to you this morning. Um, we actually have five areas that we would love everyone who calls this church home to engage with. Uh, one, that you would gather for worship on Sundays as you are here today. Check. Good job. You got one down. Two, that you would serve once a month in some way, helping make Sunday happen and not just be a consumer, as uh, Brian Alton mentioned this morning, that we want to be participating in this. Three, that you would give joyfully as God calls and enables you so that you're participating, belonging, not just physically, but also financially with your stewardship. Fourth, that you would join a family of servants on mission, a, a city group, so you can do ordinary life with gospel intentionality. And then fifth, that you'd be in a change group type of relationship with one or two others. And our desire is that everyone would have someone close to them that, that knows everything that's going on with them and that can be speaking the gospel into it. And maybe you have a few questions of how to move forward uh, in creating a change group. First thing would be, who do you do change group with? Who do you ask? We would encourage you to do change group type of relationship with a friend or two. And this should be a close friend. Uh, this is not a relationship that you would enter into lightly uh, with just anyone. So be thoughtful about who you approach about this, who you ask. Be gracious if they decline. It's not a small thing that you're asking. So it's normal uh, for it to not work in every situation. Um, and that also means you may not always have a really great change group type relationship in every season of your life. That You may have some, they may come and go. I've had different seasons in my life where they've been more uh, present or less present, more easy to form, uh, harder to form. Uh, what if you don't have anyone to ask? If you don't have relationships in your life right now that, that would fit into this level uh, or into this, this this kind, this category, uh, we would then encourage you to be like, well, start there and begin to develop more uh, and deeper and more intimate relationships in your life. Uh, it takes work. We would encourage you to pursue that. It may be that through the pursuit of autonomy or just even busyness that you've, you've not had a lot of close friendships or relationships uh, in your life. Or maybe you've intentionally, to protect yourself, limited yourself to more superficial relationships. You don't let anyone get too close. Uh, maybe that's you. Or uh, maybe you've really, really tried, but you've had trouble feeling like people accept you. Like you're like, yeah, I, I have friends, but they won't really let me go deep with them. I don't know what is going on. Um, well, let me let you into a little secret. There are very few problems in this world 
that the right book cannot help you solve. And I know the Lord answers prayer and he does miracles, but maybe the miracle in your life is that you study how to be a better friend, how to be a better human being and how to relate to other, other people uh, through intentional study. So if you've struggled to connect with people, I'm gonna just bootstrap you really quickly here and give you three, three tips to help you pursue this. One, uh, become a better listener. Everybody likes talking about themselves. It's just a thing. So be a good listener. Become a better listener. Ask great questions. Give eye contact. And here's the key. While they're talking, don't just be waiting for your chance to talk. You know, if you're talking with someone and you can see it in their eyes, they're like waiting, just waiting. And they're like, sometimes their mouth opens a little bit and you're like, I'm not done talking. And they close it. You just, don't do that. Instead, follow up with another question. Keep them talking. Um, It's amazing to me how many people don't know how to do this. All right, number two, uh, seek to uh, learn and understand how boundaries work. Uh, Different relationships can and will offer different levels of uh, closeness. I've had friendships with guys who have um, jobs where they're like driving a truck or something like that. So basically, they're not really doing anything at work while they're they're just driving. And, And so they have lots of time to talk on the phone. So then they would call me while I'm working uh, in an area job that I am not free to just be talking to people. And, uh, and, and so, you know, this rela- there's a problem in this, in this relationship. You have to establish boundaries. I only have so many words in my body for any given day. and You can't steal them all from my children. You know, I, and, and so those relationships, we work that out or I just have to block them on my phone. Boundaries. Um, speaking of phones, third tip, put your phones away. Uh, and, and break bread with people in real life. This is like, I feel like this is such a, obviously this is like a new problem, but so much of our lives, so much of our relationships have become digitized. Uh, Facebook friends are not real friends. Texting is not talking. Um, sharing a meal with someone is not Instagramming them a picture of your Indian food. That doesn't count. Actually, just put your phone away, sit down in real life with real people and eat real food together. Uh, that does a lot somehow psychologically to bond us together. So, and again, if you're struggling in this area, if, 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 if you don't immediately have someone in mind that you can go ask this week to be in a change group with you to pursue uh, this goal, then just work on developing your relationships. That's still a positive thing that will still involve constraints. It will still involve getting connected to other people and, and you will feel some of your autonomy slipping away. It's okay. Let that, let that go. Uh, if you'd like to learn more specifically about how we do change groups, you can uh, go to church21.ca right now on your little devices. I know I said put your phones away, but you can, you can take them out. And, uh, and go to church21.ca slash change, and you'll find there's like a three-page sort of PDF there that talks about how we do it. If you want to read more uh, at, at length, our good friend Jonathan Dodson wrote Gospel-Centered Discipleship. We probably have copies in the bookstore because I think we got like a thousand copies or something from him when it came out. And, uh, and so that talks a lot more about how to do this. And he also has a website, uh, gospel center discipleship or G G C discipleship.com. And there's articles written by a lot of different people. So you can begin to develop this side of your life more and more and more. We serve a God that is literally three persons in one substance. So within God himself, there is this deep shared relationship and community. It makes sense then to be Christian people uh, would involve community. 
that being a Christian isn't like a solo sport, like pole vaulting or something. Those guys don't even have, well, maybe they have spotters. What's an individualized sport? Help me out here. Golfing? They have caddies. I'm, pulling, I'm drawing a short here. What? Tennis is against another person. You can't play tennis by yourself. I really need running. There we go. There's lots of individual sports. I should have thought of one before I got up here. It's not an individual sport. It's a team sport like lacrosse. There we go. <clears throat> it's a team sport. It's something that we should be doing together. Uh, it's something that, that makes a difference. Henry Nguyen is a Dutch priest and theologian. He felt this keenly. He had a lot of personal struggles in his life. And he wrote that the Christian community, Christian community is the place where we keep the flame of hope alive among us and take it seriously so that it can grow and become stronger in us. If you separate and you isolate yourself from Christian community, the Lord's work in you will be slower. It will be diminished. But in as much as you give up your personal autonomy and you lean in to the church and even lean into these structured types of relationships, uh, you will see the fruit of change in your life. Um, it's time for us to set aside our autonomy and enter into dependency, not just dependency in Jesus, but dependency on one another. It, it feels, I'm an independent person. So I'm preaching to myself a little bit this morning. Like it feels a little bit icky even to say that the dependency on one another. Uh, but this is one way that we will be very different from the city, a city that thrives on autonomy. When they come and they'll see something a little bit different among us. And we can point them to the good news of Jesus. Pray with me towards this end. Jesus, we do, we do want to be different, Lord. Uh, we, we want to shine like a light, like a beacon in this city. We want, to be, we want to be salt. We want to be even a little bit irritating the way salt can be um, as it's spread into things. Lord, help us to um, repent of our autonomy, to repent of our independence. Lord, I pray for each and every person here as they're uh, wrestling with wherever they're at with this, uh, whether they've cut themselves off um, from others, from you, uh, whether they have many close friendships or maybe many shallow relationships. Lord, where each person is, I ask that you would move them one step closer to your design. That there would be an increased uh, level of interdependence in our church that there would be uh, more and more change, real lasting change driven by a knowledge of your grace. Or we ask that we would not look just like the city, uh, but we'd be different. Uh, we ask that you would do this uh, in us and through us for your glory, uh, that you would, um, spirit, that you would finish the work that you've begun in each of us. In your name, amen.